first readings from Esther on page 503, chapter 4, 1 to 14. Mordecai persuades Esther to help. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict of of their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther that Mordecai, what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death, unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. About 30 days had passed since I was called to go to, to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you're in the king's house, you, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to to your royal position for such a time as this. This is the word of the Lord. The Gospel reading is from the book of John, from the Gospel of John, and it's John chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, and it can be found on page 1065 of the Bible. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, 
but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please do be seated, except for Jill, who I'm going to invite uh, to come out to the front now. So I'm going to pray before we uh, begin. Loving God, thank you for Jill, uh, for all that you have made her to be. Thank you for the gift of her particular story. Uh, and may it be to us a visible uh, witness and sign of your love uh, in her life and her growing in faith and walking with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So how this is going to work is um, I'm trying to take a back seat because it's not my story. (laughs) Um, It's Jill's story. And what I want us to be doing this morning is just thinking, um, listening to Jill, hearing her story, um, but also that it resonates with us that we all have a story. Uh, Some of what Jill will say will, uh, will resonate with your own story. But just in terms of the questions that I ask her, you might think about, you know, what you would say uh, to some of these questions as well. Um, So I am going to ask some questions, but I'm not the main (laughs) storyteller this morning. Are you ready? Okay. So when when would you say you became a Christian? Was uh, it something that was always there, or was there a moment of choice? How did that work for you? So I I think retrospectively, I'd say I, I... always been a Christian. I was brought up in um, a very Christian household. My parents went to the local church and we all went as a family there. Um, We went to Sunday school and holiday club. And I just, um, I think my parents are amazing role models because they, they were Christians, but their, their actions always spoke loud than words. They were very good neighbors to people. Um, And I did go to church. I did find it boring um, in that, you know, it was in those days especially very much a grown-up people's place. Um, But I loved Sunday school. We had a young curate, and he used to do holiday club. And (coughs) those were my very, very special times at church because you could just be you and run around and, um, you know, have stories and singing. And, yeah, so it was, and I had a, you know, I was blessed that I was taught to pray daily, um, which I did. So my, my, my childhood years, I was brought up in a loving family Christian home. Wonderful. When you first thought about, uh, actually, I'm following God intentionally here, um, although you've had that kind of upbringing in a home where the Christian faith was lived and the stories were told, but when you had that moment where you thought, oh, actually, I'm, I'm doing this myself now, how did it make a difference in your life? Um, <clears throat> so when Jodie asked me this question, it, it, it sort of brought back lots of memories, not, some not very good really, um, because I think that I, I had always tried to follow God intentionally, I, I really had, and, I, and my greatest desire, so my greatest because I loved playing sports and things, but you know, my desire was to be a good Christian. But when I was a teenager, I had lots of, um, well I had a, a, a particular friend that was really lovely, and she was um, a born again Christian. 
And she used to say to me, but have you been saved, Jill? And I'd be thinking, well, I don't know, because I've always been a Christian. And she'd say, but that's not good enough. You know, people that go to church but haven't been saved, you know, you're not really a Christian. And this used to worry me terribly. And literally, probably from, I don't know, 12 till mid-twenties at least, you know, a good, a good part of that time, was me with this battle within myself between... Um, wanting to be a good Christian, that the good Christian that I suppose my parents had brought me up in that I felt at home with, um, compared to what these people are really sure of themselves, especially Christian um, Union at university, they were really sure of themselves. And I really wanted to be that sure, but this really wasn't quite me, this was me. Um, and it was... Um, yeah, a hard time, really, because I think over those years, I built God up to be somebody who was really scary um, because I, because I wasn't, I wasn't going to be good enough. And because I hadn't, I hadn't sort of felt that I'd been saved, I'd felt that all the things that they expected of me, I found really hard to do. It didn't come naturally to me. Um, and when I was just before I was about to get married, my, my, my late husband, Chris, literally about four weeks before, she said to me, oh, and don't be yoked to an unbeliever. And Chris wasn't a Christian. I mean, he was, had a Christian heart, but, you know, he wasn't a Christian. And, or less of a Christian than me at that time, I should say, because I didn't feel I was much of one. But I remember that upset me terribly. Anyway, I, I, we did get married. Um, and so I felt even again, I'd sort of gone gone away from God. And I want to read you a little something from, um, it's called God of Surprises, by, and some of you might know it, by Gerard Hughes. And I've only read this in the last 10 years, but when I read it, I thought, oh gosh, that was me. That was what I was feeling, but I didn't really know how to say it. So, <coughs> um, so what um, Gerard Hughes tries to do is, he just talks about Christianity, and he says how we all build up an image of God, and that can be a positive image or a negative image. So, And this is what he says about an image that some people have. God, um, he says, he, he calls him good Uncle George, good old Uncle George. God was a family relative, much admired by my Christian friends, who described God as very loving, a great friend, powerful and interested in us all. Eventually, we are taken to visit good old Uncle George. He lives in a formidable mansion. He's bearded, gruff, and threatening. We cannot share our friend's professed admiration for him. But at the end of the visit, Uncle George turns to address us. Now, dear, he begins looking very severe. I want you to keep my rules, and I want to see you here once a week. And if you fail to come... Um, well, let me just show you what will happen. He leads us down to the mansion's basement. It's dark. It becomes hotter and hotter as we descend, and we begin to hear unearthly screams. In the basement, there are steel doors. Uncle George opens one. Now, look in, the, in there, my dear, he says. We see a nightmare vision, an array of blazing furnaces with little demons in attendance who hurl into the blaze those men and women and children who failed to visit Uncle George or to not act in a way that he would approve of. And if you don't visit me, my dear, or you don't do as I ask, then this is where you will go. He then takes us upstairs again to meet our friends. And as we go home, tightly clutching their hands, um, the friend leans over and says... And don't you just love Uncle George with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength? And we, loathing the monster, say, yes, I do. 
<laughs> because to do anything else would seem to be wrong. So he then goes on just a little bit and he says, Uncle George, of course, is just one caricature of a false notion of God, but there are many others. We might get rid of Uncle George and replace him with Santa Claus. Of course, Santa Claus is far closer to God who is love than Uncle George, but bears little relation to the God of Scripture who counts the very hairs, hairs of our heads and who created my innermost self and put me together in my mother's womb. So, as I say, that encapsulated it. So I hope that, was, that helps you to realize how I was sort of feeling at that time. Although I was going to church and I was praying, I was trying trying to be a good Christian. So um, we got married, we moved to Bushy Heath, and that was really, that was age 22. Um, and that was a very healing time for me and my faith. I had really kind vicars, um, and they just really helped me to see God as a loving father. And time went on, we had our own family, um, and, and a happy marriage, and Chris later became a, a Christian and had a really, really strong faith. And it was very much like my parents' faith, sort of words and actions. But then in the mid-90s, there became a new worry for me, uh, the ordination of women. Because my church was a very high church, what we call a Fordian faith church. They don't believe in the ordination of women, and, and that, that's still true now. They don't believe it's scriptural. But my sister was about to be ordained, um, and she had felt her calling when she was about 12 before you... There were such things as women vicars. Um, And so I then had this struggle again within me of, is the vicar right or is my sister right? And um, it just hasn't been before. Are my parents right or are my friends right? Now it was, are the vicars right who I love and I really respect? Or is my sister right who I love and I know that she really feels this with her heart? So um, I... so, But at this stage, the vicars weren't sort of damning me. It was more like... Jill, you know, one day you'll see the light. Um, So it was a kinder feeling of not quite getting it right. So I remember on the morning of um, Sue's ordination, I was was looking in the mirror, probably, probably seeing I looked okay as opposed to anything else. But I just remember thinking or saying to God... um, Help me because I, you know, I don't know which of these are right. The vicar's teaching or Sue's teaching. Um, I'm not sure what's right. Anyway, went to ordination. Um, she, she gave me communion. We went to sit back and I can still sit where I was sitting. And I looked across at her and she was administri- uh, administering, administrating, yes, the, um, the, um, uh, you know, the, the Holy Communion to other people. And I just had this, this sense, this, I can't say their words, but um, it wasn't a voice, but these words were, um, you've brought her home. And I realized that that was it, God's answer to me. Um, it wasn't my, my vicars, my sisters, my Christian Union friends, my mum, dads. It wasn't what any of them thought. It was as God, it was as God was saying, that's what I want you to know. You've brought her home. I, he wasn't saying, oh, the ordination of women is right, the ordination of women is wrong. It was, you have brought her home. Um, and it started me having confidence more in bringing myself before God, um, not trying to be what everybody else was telling me I should be, but just me. And that was, the, I suppose, the first time I really felt, oh, that's just me and just you, and that's what you're saying to me. And that was a, 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 a very special moment. Next question. <laughs> so you mentioned...
So there were a couple, so there was that time I've just, just spoken of. There was another time by, by um, Loch Lomond where I, where Ian and I were, and my husband had died sort of several years before. And I just remember looking across the loch, and it's, if you know Scotland and the loch, so it sort of can be very mysterious. You, I just, but it's so serene, so beautiful, and it's such a special place. But I looked across, and the sort of the mountains were like that, and, the, and you could see into the distance. And I just remember thinking, oh, that feels like where heaven meets earth. That, that I, this I'm just thinking my normal funny thoughts. I thought, oh, that feels like where heaven meets earth. And then I thought, oh, that's probably where Chris is. And then I just, again, I didn't have a voice at all. I just had this, 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 sort of this little phrase in my head, we are as we were, which I've, I, I took as sort of reassurance from God that, you know, the relationship that I had with Chris, despite being happily married to him, you know, that that would never be taken away. So I suppose... I feel if God has ever spoken to me, and they're not, I didn't have words, I, I didn't hear a voice, I just had, had these words that were quite unusual phraseologies, and they're certainly not words I would use. Um, you know, it would have been, it's okay, don't worry, or ordination of women is correct. That's, those are the words I would use, and it, and it was sort of just words that were meant for me, and words of, you know, of really, of, both times they brought comfort, both times, um, it was just that knowledge of God in, in, in that situation. And I really realized everybody's different um, and everybody feels and experiences God in different ways. But I think God knows me well and he knows I need reassurance. And in those two moments, that's what he did. think and probably it's probably obvious is that I'd say how my faith has evolved it's now become my faith as opposed to anybody else telling me what 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 it should be um and really I you know this has taken years um a, a long long time to get to that place and I'm still still not there um I know I now know I needed to go through those phases and indeed Gerard Hughes, I'm, I'm not getting any proceeds, but he talks about um, stages of belief that you almost have an infant stage of belief where you believe everything you're told, your parents tell you that and you just trust. And then you go through an adolescent phase and that, that phase for me lasted 20 years. Um, that phase where you're struggling and you're really at odds with what people are telling you, you're trying to, trying to get your adult faith and then you come to your adult faith where it it is your faith, and of course, that's still a big journey, but that's where you are. Um, and then I think I've got a lot more confidence now to rely on my faith. And if somebody says something that I think oh, that doesn't quite fit, I sort of, I'll pray about it. And then I'll also look at what the, um, you know, what Jesus did, uh, what the fruits of the spirits are, and, and sort of try and align it in my head from that rather than just... Just, just believing. And then, of course, coming to St. Peter, uh, Saint, Saint Michael's, um, I think has been part of that journey because St. Peter's in Bushy Heath is an absolutely wonderful church and been a huge, huge part of my life. But as I told you, it's a, um, a very traditional church, so it's all liturgy and quite old-fashioned language, um, which gives great comfort to lots of people. But as my faith is becoming more my faith, I've just found here at St. Michael's, it's, it's sort of freer. Um, and it's just a little bit more me, and that's why I'm, I'm, we're here, and we, we, we love to be here. Wonderful, thank you. Uh, and so, in terms.
I might have struggled to think who he was and what he was there, but I mean, I can, looking back, see how he was there the whole time. The church, the church, you know, in all places for me, um, St. Peter's and here, uh, reading the Bible and also reading Christian books, this sort of thing speaks to me such a lot when you read from people that have, have struggled with their faith and they'll just put different angles on it. It's really, really useful. And, of course, my family and friends. My family and my friends, Christian and non-Christian friends, just those group of people that sort of love you for who you are. Um, especially sort of, le- um, yeah, sort of my early 20s, going to the Christian Union, which obviously is really, really positive. I'm so sorry. It's a really positive experience for lots of people. So it, it was just, just how it was. And it was obviously me taking it to them rather than anything wrong about them. Um, that was a time. And at the very beginning of, of my marriage, after they'd said, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't marry an unbeliever, that was a time when it would have been so much easier to give up on God. Because had I done that, I could have done all those things that felt right, right to me. Um, but, but I didn't. So, um, and that was good. Um, and, and obviously when, I say obviously, when, when, when Chris died, that was a time when um, it, it's, I knew, I still knew God was there, and I, it was never that you stopped believing, I knew he was there, but I was just really cross with him, and I, and it's it sort of, I liken it to, that, yeah, that he sort of let us down, I liken it to, which says, doesn't say very much about me as a person, but I liken it to, you're at a party, and you're your best friends at this party, and they just arrived, and you've always been great, great friends, and they've really, really let you down. And so at the party, you know they're there, but you keep talking to this person here, and they're trying to look over at you and smile at you or something, and you just deliberately keep focused on this other person. So that, it sounds a funny thing to say, but it was that sort of feeling that knowing God was there and knowing that he'd always been there, but actually I just did not want to look in that direction at that time. But during that time, I had great, you know, great friends, and everybody helped me, so... Just his wonderful provision for me, really. Um, physically. Um, I, th- I was trying to think of something. I was sort of thinking, because I really, when Jodie asked me, I was like, oh, yes. And then I thought, why did I say that? And then I listened to Desert Island Discs, and I was thinking, I should put some music in my head or something to help me through this. And I was thinking, the time, so the, the time of now and the time after we died and, and I married in, I would say, was um, uh, Lord for Faithfulness. Um, and this sort of thing, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine, with 10,000 beside. And that, and that, yeah, sums it up really. And I think hope is such a huge thing. And the fact that God gave me hope is, is such a gift. There's also a Matt Redmond song which goes, Blessed be the name of the Lord. So he gives, so it's you give and take away, but my heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. And I think that sums up my life too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I wasted a 
huge chunk of my time feeling unworthy. Um, and, and just really realizing that I was trying to be a good Christian, but actually all God wanted me to be was me. And then once I think you can be you, then you can be used in, in different ways. Because actually, when I, in all my teaching careers ahead, whatever I've done, I have always just been me because I've learned that that's what I am. And he can use you better if you're you, uh, you know, because that's how he made you. So I think the lessons I've learned from that time of feeling great Uncle George is that when I'm um, teaching and you know, leading worship or doing um, godly play at school, I'm really mindful that I never want any child to feel, um, you know, that they're not good enough, that they've got it wrong, that their image of God is, is, is different. And I think godly play, always in godly play, there's these, these words at the end. You say, I wonder, I wonder what um, God would feel about that, or I wonder who this person is. Um, and I just love that because it's not this is what it is, it's I wonder, because to each person it will be different. It's drawing it out of that. Um, I'm a terrible, 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 terrible warrior. Um, And even though I know long-term that God will take care of me, and he has, I absolutely know that. It's that short-term it's those times when, you, you know, one of the children real or something like that. My daughter's just about to have a baby. And then that's when I revert back to, ah. um, I know long-term it'll be fine, but I also know that there is heartache for, for us all. And, um, you know, you don't want those times. So it's just really that I have faith in the everyday as well as, well as the long-term. That would be it. Thank you. Is there anything else you would like to say? Anything you haven't said? No, so Thank how you. can we pray for you? Or I'm going to be retiring at Nansichul. In <laughs> I only gave my letter in two days ago. Um, so from September. So really what the future holds for me there. And I'm um, about to have my first grandchildren in two weeks. So that would be good for that. Um, and, the and I just should have said, sorry, that um, and obviously part of us being here is Ian and I being here. And that's sort of part of our faith as well. So it, it's each, each chapter is a new chapter. And you don't know what it's going to hold. But, um, but past knowledge is that I know God will be there for us both. Yeah, so. that's wonderful. Thank you. Can I pray for you?